Rico, Rejecting the Screen, the Going ISO edition, as we do every week. This episode of Rejecting the Screen brought to you by Built Bar. More on that later on. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out West, Adam Stanko, our guest today, a four-time All-Star, two-time All-NBA, the eighth overall pick in the 1993 NBA draft. He's an Olympic gold medalist and currently a Milwaukee Bucks assistant coach. He's Ben Baker. Ben, let's start with that Olympic team in 2000. Correct me if I'm wrong. Were you underneath the basket for the Vince dunk? Yeah, so I, I definitely was. Uh, and I, I joke all the time about I'm probably the only person in the history of watching that and certainly being a part of it that was totally, like, disappointed with the dunk. I, I asked him for the lob, like, two seconds before, and, and uh, I had to kind of play it off when he, when I saw the dunk. I was really trying to – my first reaction was, like, this selfish son of a gun, like, why didn't he just throw me the lob? <laughs> Until I actually saw the replay, maybe a couple a couple uh, minutes later, and I was like, "Gosh, I'm glad he didn't throw me the lob because I definitely wasn't going to do anything like that." So <laughs> I, I'm not even kidding. I, I was like totally, you know, in the Olympics, points are hard to come by, so you had so many great players, and totally thought Vince was going to throw me that, but uh, I might have interrupted or messed up one of the greatest dunks in the history of basketball. So I'm, I'm in hindsight, I'm I'm appreciative that he didn't throw me that. So, I was, yes, to answer your question, I was under the basket waiting for that lob, and thank God he didn't throw it to me. When did you realize how, how special that, that play was in, in NBA history or so, basketball yeah, history? Like, yeah, I didn't – like, honestly, it wasn't then. It wasn't at the games. Um, you know, I saw the reaction of Kevin and everyone else, and I kind of – my reaction wasn't all the way official. I was just kind of – I just thought of it as a dunk. I didn't realize he had jumped completely over the guy. So – it took me a few years um, to get the bitterness out of not getting the lob, and I'm, I'm not even joking. Like I, I, I didn't, I, I was still a player, so as a player, you're kind of competitive, and I thought it was, a, you know, after seeing it a couple of times, maybe a year later, I'm like, wow, that was pretty incredible. That that was crazy. But I, initially, I wasn't as pumped as my reaction on the screen, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> I totally faked the reaction, but I was like, bro, you should have given me the lie. That is unreal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's only, I guess it's only high percentage of a play for Vince Carter to do that. Nope, nobody else. But still, I guess a lob to you yeah, would have been no, higher percentage. Yeah. You know what's crazy, though? It, I'll tell you an interesting story. We, we had, like, training camp in Hawaii. Um and Vince, like, like one of one of my things is like single rolling. Like, I like to get past my defender in the paint and get to the bucket and really not dunk it like emphatically. I, I would just beat my defender and, and kind of lay it in. That was like cool to me. It felt good and and um, you know, I wasn't like the Sean Kemp dunkers and, and, and these emphatic Rasheed Wallace and these guys who dunk Chris Webber. I kind of like to beat my guy and, and get to the rim and nice little butter roll and, and everyone kind of understands what just happened. So we were in Hawaii and Vince was watching me in practice a little bit. And, and, and he kept saying to me, like, D, I'm telling you, you got to turn it over. Like once you get to the rim, just turn it over, turn it over. And I'm like, bro, I, I'm doing what I do. I'm wearing the Olympics, bro. Like I don't really need any of <laughs> Like I'm an Olympian with you. Like relax. <laughs> so it's kind, of, it's kind of my game, but he just kept saying that. So interestingly enough, after that dunk, um, maybe like a few plays later, a few minutes later on the bench, he's like, he says to me, he says, gee, I told you, don't get out of your way. Like he, he tells his, his message to me, like, I told you, you just got to go over and turn it over. I'm like, bro, I cannot do that. <laughs> so, 
what, what was the dynamic of the team like? So it was, it was, you know, we had a great, great team. Like we were so, um, you know, we were diverse as far as, and, and versatile, I should say, across the board. I mean, we had Peyton Hardaway, Jason Kidd um, at the point guard position. So we had playmakers, score, defender. I mean, you know, we had, you know, obviously we had Ray Allen and, and Steve Smith and, and a lot of, you know, wing players, obviously Vince. And, uh, and then up front, you know, we had Alonso, uh Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett. So across the board, now I'm living out a few of the players, but across the board, we were a pretty balanced team. And I know that team doesn't get a lot of the, you know, um, you know, a lot of the praise that some of the previous uh, dream teams of previous Olympian, Olympic teams, but that team was really, really uh, stacked across the board as far as the versatility and the type of players we had on the team, you know, we had about five or six, maybe seven Hall of Famers on the team. And we, the, the interesting part is everyone came and pushed each other. Like, we really worked hard. Of course, you've heard all the stories about these teams getting together and how competitive um, the games, the practices were. And our team was no different. I mean, you, you'd walk in and see Garnett and Duncan going at it or Zoe and, and someone else going at it. So our team was no different from that standpoint. Um, our coaching staff, Tom Janovich and Larry Brown, obviously great coaching staff. So we we had a we had a pretty good team um, going to Australia and a fun team, but a very competitive team as well. It's a lot of could be a lot of card games on that flight, and that's what you know. One the nine the ninety two the the dream team was known for those legendary card games. Who was winning your games? So so that was interesting. I I didn't really notice a ton of. Like, there wasn't, like, a lot of car playing. I think the dream team was that, – that card playing was more of a Jordan thing. Like, you know, obviously Jordan was probably the, leader, the ring leader there. We didn't really have a guy on our team that was really into cards that much. Um, you know, our, our best players, I would, I would say Timmy uh, maybe being the best player at the time, and Garnett, um, they, they were like – Timmy was super quiet. I, I can't remember – Timmy saying a lot on the planes or on the bus. Um, and so our dynamic was a little bit different in that our, our best players were somewhat uh, quiet and introverts at the time. We, we, we obviously opened up as players um, on the court, but I would say our bus and playing activity wasn't uh, – it was a lot of storytelling, but not a lot of card playing. We'll get more from Vin in a moment. We told you at the top this episode is brought to you by Built Bar. BuiltBar.com, promo code LOCKEDON, $10 off your first order. LOCKEDON, $10 off your first order, BuiltBar.com. And these bars, they're good. I mean, and I've had, look, I've been trying to put on muscle for years, dude. Like, probably my whole life. And it just you hasn't. Look good. It just, you look but good. It, just, it just hasn't worked. And I need something that I don't feel like it's a chore to eat or something to mix with to get that protein. And also, I'd prefer to be low in sugar since so many right. of these like cliff bars like tons of sugar this this built bar actually now has it's got seven times less sugar than cliff bars and the calorie counts anywhere from like 110 to 200 so it's sitting in that like 150 160 range and some of the flavors i tried the peanut butter brownie one i was trying to think of the, which one yeah. it was the peanut butter brownie and the toffee almond Woo! oh yeah yeah, I, 
So no, my kids, we, we have a box here. My kids just went like scrounging through this thing and just tearing it apart. So the, uh, you know, I tried the mint chocolate, which is mm. excellent. Um, but one. yeah, the peanut butter one that you were just talking about, like they were diving into also. And the cool thing was for my wife, exactly like you described, and typically my girls are now teenagers, 16 and 14. So they're looking for stuff. They're active right now, working out a ton. They're looking for stuff that they can, that they can eat that, um, you know, help out their workouts and, and actually get some protein behind it. Like they're asking for that kind of stuff now. Yeah. And yet my wife's not allowing them to have like some of these energy bars or certainly like a candy bar or even a cliff bar. Like you talk about with all the crazy calories and, and sugar and these things, it's shocking how little sugar is in these in these bars and they still taste the way they do it's pretty it's amazing really yeah yeah for something to taste that good to have such low sugar and high protein like 15 20 grams of protein it's awesome just, just remember go to builtbar.com promo code locked on ten dollars off your first order builtbar.com promo code locked on 10 bucks off your first order so then i want to go back to the beginning for you i know when you were in eighth grade you were a six foot guard you told your friends that you were going to grow to be seven feet tall and play in the NBA. And then as a sophomore in high school, you get, you get cut from the varsity basketball team. So I'm curious at that point in your life now, as a sophomore, you just get cut from varsity. What are you thinking about your basketball future? So, so what's interesting is even when I, you know, I didn't make the JV team when I was a freshman. And so my, my sophomore year, what was interesting is my I didn't make varsity, but I was I loved basketball so much that I was I was disappointed about not playing varsity or not making varsity, but I kind of understood I was still I was six two, six three as a sophomore, so you can imagine how my coordination was at, at six two, six three. I was still developing, I was still growing, my body was very weak, and so I didn't really look at it like I did. I was a little bit disappointed, but I was getting a chance to play basketball. So that that's how I kind of looked at it. Like I'm I'm not um, where I want to be, and I'm not going to make the varsity obviously this year. But I'm going to have a chance to compete, and and that that's where I was. I, I was like giddy about the fact that I was going to be playing basketball. I wasn't. I was disappointed, but I was still at the same time. I didn't know how good I was going to be. You know, I was six three, so you know I was like the same height as the rest of the guys in the school. As a matter of fact, a little bit shorter than some of the guys who played varsity. So it wasn't like I was walking around 6'10", like what's going on here? Like this is bogus. I was I was still kind of undersized and hadn't developed into my body, still had some growing to do, obviously. And so it was just, for me, a disappointment. But at the same time, I was getting a chance to, to play play basketball. So that, that's how I viewed it. Like I'm just going to keep getting better and just keep having fun. So I was 14, 15 years old, thinking like any other 14 or 15-year-old. And you felt that same way as a junior when you weren't starting? So my junior year, I actually – so my junior year in high school was the first year I started varsity. So I did play – Oh, you were starting. Yeah, my junior year, I, I, my, my sophomore year, I was junior varsity. Mm-hmm. And then my, my, my junior and senior year, I played varsity. So, um, again, I grew, like, between my sophomore and junior year in high school, I grew from 6'3 to 6'7. That'll work. So, 
yeah, my height came and I obviously got much better and I was super, super competitive. That's the one thing that kind of got me over um, when I was a kid. Like I was so competitive and and I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't great, obviously, at basketball, very good at basketball, but I was super, super competitive. I was game for any game at any time. And so my junior year and my senior year, I did start varsity. So I went from basically junior varsity, not playing my freshman year, my sophomore year playing JV. And then my junior year, I played, um, started at varsity for the first time. When When you end up trying to figure out what school to go to, and end up at Hartford. Mm-hmm. And I'm an American East guy, American East guy. I went to I went to Boston University. And oh, I guess okay. yeah, and uh Brett Brown's dad was coaching BU at the time that you were at Hartford. Why not UConn? So interestingly enough, like how I'm explaining my development, um, I didn't I didn't develop until late. And and when I so my my junior year is my first year playing varsity and again I, I I came from a small town small high school and no one I was wasn't really on anyone's radar as far as uh the elite basketball teams not even really the division one basketball teams in the state or the country so um by the time when I when I played the first year as a junior before my senior season started at Old Saybrook High School, I committed to the University of Hartford. Like, I went from not playing, hmm. only playing one year varsity, to prop, to committing to the University of Hartford. Like, I got a scholarship to go to the University of Hartford, like, overnight. And, and a funny story is my mom, prior to my senior season starting, my mom, the University of Hartford was recruiting me and, like, two other players. I don't know if you remember Harper Williams. He, was a, he ended up going to UMass, but he was, he was recruiting like other players in the yep. state. And my mom comes to me and she's like, you better take this scholarship before they give it to someone else. So <laughs> I, I, I committed to the University of Hartford prior to my senior season starting. I had only played one year varsity, so it was kind of a miracle. Like I went from one year varsity to getting a full ride scholarship and there was no way in heck in the Baker household, we were going to say no to a full ride um, to go to college to play basketball because no one, I'm an only child and no one in my family had done that before. So it was like, and, and on top of it, the UConn question, when I committed to the University of Hartford, like this is my, in 1989, when I graduated from high school, UConn had just like started to burst on the scene nationally. They had just become, they had kind of stepped, they were about to step into that, national powerhouse um realm and you know i i didn't fit that that mold at the time like they were going after the guys who were mcdonald's all americans and you know they 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 had just you know coach calhoun had just got that team they were just about to start to go on this amazing run that they, they ultimately did so i just didn't fit at that time they were only taking like the top, the number one player mm. in the state. And I, I definitely wasn't that at the time. So interestingly, people remember your, your college career as this guy. You started off statistically at least slow your freshman year. And then by your junior year, you're getting all this praise nationally. But it was a different mm-hmm. time. People people hadn't seen you play a lot because yeah. you were at Hartford. And mm-hmm. this Sports Illustrated quote that I found, which is amazing – you get a new coach coming in as you're heading into your, your senior year. There's a Sports Illustrated article written about you, praising you. 
and they mm. asked the co- your coach how good you were. Coach said, how good is he? It's crazy, but I still haven't seen him play. <laughs> I've watched films, of course, but I haven't been able to watch him play basketball live. That's the NCAA rule. Crazy. He's playing here every day, and I can't watch. So when he finally did get a chance to see you play, what was the reaction? <laughs> he, he, was, I, he was pretty excited. He, he pulled me into his office, and, you know, we, we talked for a little while. Because Coach Brazo had just come from Ohio State. You know, he had seen Jim Jackson and some. Lawrence Funderburg, so he had been around some pretty mm. some NBA players. So um, I, I I think Coach like his reaction was he just didn't realize exactly what he had gotten um, or what you know the type of player that he had had gotten. And and there was still some reservations there to be honest with you fellas. Like we only my junior year, although I put up these massive numbers, we only won six games my junior right. year. So as much as we I was I had this extraordinary you know, these extraordinary statistics, Coach was still trying to figure out how can we get this guy who's averaging 28 points a game to to turn this into some wins. So he was ecstatic with the talent. And the weird part about it is I think at some point um, my senior year, like, we were a good team. There were better teams, I think, in the league, but I, I was the best player. But there were better teams in the league. Uh, Drexel was really good. I think Delaware was really good still. And so I think Coach was just trying to figure out how do we translate this into wins? How can I get him to the tournament? And so the challenge was uh, for him and I think for me was, you know, although I'm getting all these accolades at being the Sports Illustrated said the nation's best-kept secret, like mm-hmm. how do we get this university to elevate ourselves to be a winning program? That's You know, it just comes from Ohio State. But at some point or another, I think the weird part about it, Coach is like, all right, he's going to take it off the rim. He's going to dribble up the court every single time. We're just going to have to find a way to find a way to make this work because I think at, at the University of Harvard, I was doing like everything, man, like rebounding and bringing it coast to coast. I was just doing everything, and so I, I think he was shocked uh, the first time he saw me. But it was it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with Coach Brazo at, at University of Harvard. Yeah, so that SI article that Adam just referenced, the great Lee Monfield, one of the all-time sports writers, writes that article, calls you America's best-kept secret. What did it What did it mean for you to have Lee Monfield there at Hartford writing about you for Sports Illustrated? Oh, it was awesome. Like, I, you know, being at the University of Hartford, it was so difficult to kind of gauge where I was in the rest of the country because I think you just alluded to it, uh, Noah, I, one of you guys alluded to it, like, we didn't have social media at the time. And so, you know, it wasn't like, it was one of those things that if Sports Illustrated, at that particular time, if Sports Illustrated comes to write an article on you, that means you've, you've, you've arrived. And so, you know, not knowing, again, coming off of a 6-21 a and 21 season, putting up massive numbers, but coming off of a pretty bad season as a team, I didn't know if the country took me serious or if anyone took me serious. I was just putting up these numbers and didn't get a chance to play against, you know, the Michigans, the the biggest schools in the country. So when they came to do the article prior to the season starting, it really gave me a boost. To be perfectly honest with you, it gave me a a boost of confidence. Like you think somebody who just averaged almost 30 points a game was totally egotistical and totally feeling he's, you know, can do anything. But I wasn't thinking like that. I was still kind of humbled by the fact that I'd just gotten this talent and just kind of exploded in this in this way. So when Sports Illustrated came 
to do this article, I was like, wow, I'm I'm starting to get some national recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, this is pretty cool. And, and it was weird because that day they took the picture and they, they let all, like, that picture was taken with other um, student athletes. So we were able to get, like, soccer, um, baseball, mm-hmm. and all these other all these other uh, sports to come in, you know, get out of class to take this picture. And you guys, you know, <laughs> been on campus before, like, Usually, all sports don't get along like that. So I think <laughs> yeah. I was kind of pumped up that I was, I was, I was able to get these guys out of class That's cool. and come to the gym and take a picture with me. I was, it was like, oh, I'm, I'm. It was like my BMOC moment. It wasn't yeah. even like a national moment. It was like my big campus moment that I was kind of pumped about. Real cool. All right, so move on then from school to the draft workout process. What's the the story or two that you felt best about? from the draft process? Um, I'll say the two stories I felt great about was obviously um, Milwaukee. Um, you know, it was my hardest workout, um, mo- most difficult one. I-, I almost quit in the workout. It was like an hour and a half long, and it was grueling, and it really crossed my mind to just stop. I'm like, what are-, what are we doing here? So that was that was a grueling positive. Obviously, it turned out to be positive because they're the ones who – ended up drafting me. And then, you know, I had some, some other workouts. I had a very interesting workout with Golden State. I got a chance to meet Don Nelson. And, you know, they had the – I think they had, like, the, the third pick in the draft. Um, but it was an interesting workout. I I, I was uh, – worked out against this dude named Brian. I can't think – he was, like, this big dude that was with them, Byron or Brian something. I can't think of his last name. But he came out for my workout. I was like, oh, my gosh. I was, like, 220 soaking wet. I'm like, I'm definitely not going to – they're definitely not going to make any moves to, to, to draft me because this dude is about to wear my behind out. So, but it was, it was the draft process was good, and, and I got through it and, and obviously ultimately got drafted by the – got picked by the Milwaukee Bucks um, at, at the eighth slot. And we'll get into your time with the Bucks, but obviously a lot of great names from that that 93 draft class, Chris Weber, Penny Hardaway, Jamal Mashburn, Allen Houston – which of those big name guys were you working out against during the process? Um, I didn't, I didn't see any of the top guys uh, in my draft. Um, I don't. I think maybe uh, I didn't see any of the top guys. Like none of the guys. Most of my workouts were uh, by them, like just me by myself. Uh, so I didn't see any of the top guys at all, like Weber and. And Penny and and uh, Sean Bradley was also a top pick, and Mashburn. So all of us were like exclusively, you know, or had our own workouts privately. But um, you know, of course, I knew, kind of had an idea um, who was who and where where everyone was going. The interesting part about the workout and the process and the draft itself, I had no idea draft night that the Milwaukee Bucks were selecting me, and I, and I'm almost positive. One, two, three, four, five, six, and seven had an idea, but I had no idea that the Bucks would select me eight. That that was really that's what probably made the the whole experience that much cooler because I was sitting there like I had no idea. And so I I spoke to one of the vets on your on your team with the the Bucks the rookie year, and they said that you were so shy and so nice that you were impossible to haze. The year before, they said. 
We took Todd Day's money every single day. Guys were walking, guys were walking in the locker room saying, Hey Todd, thanks for these shoes. Hey Todd. Hey, hey guys, you know where I got this jacket? Todd, appreciate it. But but you were so nice and so shy. You were just impossible to be haste. Is that the truth? Yeah, no, I, I totally walked in uh the, the locker room and I think I won my teammates over. I was super humbled by being drafted and uh, my humility and, and, you know, I just wanted to play. So I, I didn't really have a huge ego. I, I just had to – I think one of the reasons my my rookie season I had to be humble because I had to find out if I really belonged, if I could really make it. So, you know, I was humbled by – my personality is that anyways um, until I played, until I got on the court. But I really wanted to just find out if I really belonged. Todd Day came from the number one basketball team in the country like the last – three years of his his or the three years that he played at Arkansas. So I, I knew why he had the chip on his shoulder. Me, I, I, I think a lot of people, I, I actually think draft night, I, the draft was booed because and, and Rodney Rogers was sitting there and he was uh, well, way more accomplished and well more, uh, much more known than I was as a, as a basketball player in college. And so I think that the pick was booed. So, and I knew that. And so for me, it was more about let me prove myself uh, to my teammates, not just on the court, but off the court as well. So I had to be humble walking into that locker room because I didn't come with the bells and whistles that, like, I would say 20 of my my draft class, um, 20 of the people in my draft class had. I had to be in there, be humble, and, and, and work myself into some respect. Well, you've said that the swagger, this quote from you, the swagger of some athletes didn't come naturally to me, especially under the glare of the NBA spotlight. So how did you work that out, considering if the confidence and swagger wasn't necessarily there, how did how do you still make it work as an NBA player? So I, I think for me it was like it had to I had to go through like the practice like day one I had to figure out like, what am I going to be good at? Like, I know I was good at everything in college, but what can I be good at in the pros? Mm-hmm. And so that mm-hmm. obviously, like, training camp, that's all the stuff that goes into a season. I had, and I didn't do summer league that year. So that summer, after I got drafted, I was still working on my contract. So for me, it was, like, just coming in and winning the, each moment, like, winning each practice. And I didn't win each moment. I didn't win every practice. But I had to try to figure out, Within the Bucks, we had Anthony Avent, Frank Bukowski. We had, you know, some veteran guys. There's some tough guys. We just, I think we just said, signed Ken Norman. So we had a bunch of guys in there that were much more physically ready, you know, physically ready for the NBA than I was. Um, and so I had to just kind of win each moment with the Bucks. I really wasn't thinking about the big picture. I was just thinking about proving myself to the Bucks, proving myself worthy. And then the swagger part, to, to answer your question, the swagger part came like, you know, my second year, we're talking about 14, 15 months or 18 months into my professional career. My second year in the NBA, I was an NBA All-Star. So some of this, you know, you get named to the All-Star team in your second year in the NBA, and then some of that kind of shyness or I don't belong it just naturally comes off. It's like I clearly belong now. How good can I be at this point? So it didn't take me long. Like I was named my my rookie season. I was named first team all rookie. So 
after a while, after the accolades started to come, my humility was still there. I still knew I knew I had some work to do because there's great power forwards, great players in the league, and I knew I had reached that. But ultimately, like some of the accolades that I got, first team all rookie, then uh, my first All Star appearance was my second in the league. Some of the nervousness and some of the you know I got to prove myself goes away. Right, it just goes away naturally. Like uh, clearly, I'm an All Star. I'm not going to fool myself and think that I'm not good enough or I don't belong. And I, I made the all-star in my second year. So it, it naturally it naturally went away, and I just started getting more confidence. And not to say that my swag became, you know, more talking in the locker room or talking, um, you know, crazy or, or, or having, you know, this, this new attitude or new ego, but my confidence got better. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's, 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 that's what the difference was. That, that rookie year, you're guarding centers. Like, you're guarding Shaq. Hakeem mm-hmm. Ewing. You remember any specific night or the next morning when you woke up, like, oh God, I guess I did just guard Shaq or Hakeem. Yeah, it, it was some crazy. It was, I tell you a funny story. We were playing in Orlando against Shaq, and and Todd and I. It's funny you mentioned Todd because Todd was a character man. Like one of one of my great. He was a great friend of mine when I was there. Really taught me a lot of. He the funny thing, the irony of it is is he taught me, like, bro, you got to go out here and go after it. Like, and he really pushed me to be better. Like, you got to later for this humble stuff, you got to get after this. And that, that was the, that was a great thing that I did get from Todd. And so we were, we were in Orlando and we went to the mall and they had this huge, and he had this, this huge poster shack in the mall. So he, uh, Todd grabs my arm. He's like, don't run. It's just the poster. And I'm like, bro, we're <laughs> He, like, yanks my arm. I didn't know what he was like. It's just, it's just a poster. Don't run. And so, you know, but my my, first, my rookie season, man, Diesel was amazing. Um, and I think I think the, the one, the toughest matchup I had at the center position was Akeem Olajuwon, man, because he was physical and he could do so much. Like, Jack was bully, strong, dunk. But Akeem was bully, put you in a blender, shake you up a little bit. Like, it's too much going on. He just punished me physically, and now he's going to put me in a blender. Um, so I think those two matchups, I, I, I totally was 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 um, dreading every time we, we played Orlando for sure. But I tell you, one of the matchups that terrified me was, uh, ironically, was the Sean Kemp matchup. Like, I, when I was a rookie, I was like, gosh, I just do not want to play. He's more athletic. He's stronger. And interestingly enough, ultimately I was traded for Sean in, in right. four years. In four years, but Sean Kemp was my that was that was the matchup I did not want in, in, in the entire league. Well, well, speaking of that match, uh, that first matchup against Kemp, GP said once, first time I saw Vin play was rookie year in some he said some crazy place in Montana, and I'd never heard of him, but he gave Kemp twenty five. <laughs> I I don't know I. Definitely know I love GP. That's my brother. I can promise you it wasn't 25, but with GP's stories, they're, they're, they're way more amazing than mine. So I, 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 I was probably more like eight and, and six. But, but no, we did. I, the part of it that we played them in the preseason, um, I think it was in, like in Green Bay. So not necessarily. I think it was like in Green yeah. Bay, Wisconsin, something like that. And, um, yeah, but, but it was it was a you know, again, that was that one of the nights I played against Sean, and I was like, "Holy cow, this dude is over the top great." And um, 
I gotta get I gotta get up to speed fast. That was that was the night I remember up in Green Bay. But I'll take the twenty five though. <laughs> so you mentioned it year two, you make your your first All Star game. That's also Glenn Robinson's rookie year. Um, you're playing in the All Star game, and I mean you already hit on some of the names that the guys that that were in that. But we're talking about 1995, like the heart of of uh, the the NBA as as a lot of us grew up knowing it. And some of those amazing names, Shaq's playing in that, Reggie Miller, Patrick Ewing. Uh, what are your memories from being this kid from Old Saybrook that's now playing in an NBA All-Star game? Man, I, I was so nervous my first All-Star game. I literally, we had like these bungalows that they gave us, the All-Stars. And, and again, fellas, I was like totally like in awe of how fast I had gotten here. It, it just kind of blew my mind that, I was at the All-Star game. I did not I, – I can tell you, I didn't go to any um, any of the events, like the dunk contest, the three-point contest. I, and, and to be honest with you, I was still like – I didn't believe it. Like, I can't believe I'm an All-Star. And in being my first year and all the names you just mentioned, I knew those guys were superstars. Like, I was still a fan of the game as much as I was there playing and representing the East and, and of course, the Milwaukee Bucks, I was still a huge fan of Reggie Miller and, and, and Shaquille and all these other guys that I had, you know, seen play on TV. And so I, I did not leave my my place until it was time to actually do the event. So we had, like, a practice, and then we had a game. I was so nervous. I can remember seeing – I think a weird moment for me, I was walking to my room, the little room that they got for us, and I saw, you guys remember Sinbad, right, the comedian? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember seeing Sinbad, and I'm, again, small market. We're not the bucks of today's bucks. We're, we're You know, we're coming up a little bit, and, you know, I know I've got some of them in name, but I just it just has not hit me. The old saber is still in me. And so I got off my cart, and I remember Sinbad, who I watched on TV, doing a a ton of things. And he said to me, he was like, he said my name. He's like Ben Baker. I didn't even know you were this this tall. The way you handle the ball on TV is crazy. And I'm like, wow. I was more in awe of him knowing me. I was about, I think I was about to ask him for an autograph when he said my name. So that 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 kind of gives you an idea of where I was in my mindset. Like, I was totally starstruck still of seeing people. So being an all-star my first year in Phoenix, I was still kind of in awe of it all, man. And I just, I'll be honest with you, I was just happy when the whole event was over. I'm like, I'm kind of a fish out of water here. <laughs> I got this game. I was super nervous. I'll tell you how nervous I was and, and what made it worse. Like, uh, I think Chris Gatlin was in that game as well. And we were both, like, probably low men on the totem pole when it came to all-star selections. No disrespect to Chris, no disrespect to me, but we weren't the superstars in the event. And, and in the game, Chris Gatlin, like, tried to negotiate a point with me. I'm like, bro, <laughs> like, I got to do something in this game, like a shot block or steal. I'm not about to sit here and negotiate a basket with you. We need to, we need to do something to make it look crazy. So, and make it look outstanding, like a dunk or something. But I'm definitely not going to negotiate a best with you. I'm going to try to block your shot, and we're going to play. But um, I was just kind of ha- – I was so nervous, man. I was just happy that the whole weekend was over. I was happy that I got named to it. This will go down in the history for me, but I'm ready to get back to Milwaukee where I can touch the ball 
next week. <laughs> so, Vin, year three, you're you're also an all star, and it's that year that you have one of the best games of your career, forty one points against the Blazers, and mm-hmm. in the years since, you have said that before that game, you got high uh-huh. with with Glenn Robinson. Like that seems unfathomable. Can you take me through that that experience that night? So yeah, it, it's you know I I don't want to you know this the the league you know weed smoking in the league in the nineties was was not abnormal. So um, it, it wasn't something like that, and and it wasn't like that was my first time um, partaking of, of of weed. I'd done it before. And this particular day, like I had never done it before, but this particular day, um, I I did it uh, in the daytime. So it wasn't like I, I went from zero to a hundred with it. It's just I did it prior to a game. I had never done it prior to a game. And you know, I went into the game and and um, and I was super, I don't know, super relaxed. I wasn't anxious. I was, you know, and I I obviously had this God-given talent and ability. And, you know, the next thing you know, I, I went for 41, and it was like it was just – it was the easiest 41 I'd ever scored before. And the only 41 – well, I hadn't scored 41 since since college. But, you know, and I'm not bragging about this, guys. You guys – I know you guys hopefully know that I'm, I'm nine years sober now. And so – but it was a sure. time in my life where I was experiencing new things, and, and that was one of the things that I did and, and uh, being young and – you know, experiment with new things. I was like, why, why not try it? I've done it before. I've been doing this, but why not give it a try? And, and of course, um, I go my first time doing it before a game, I go for like 41 and 12 against the Trailblazers at home. And, and, and I'm not obviously an advocate for this. I'm an advocate of sobriety and not using it. But it, the, the smoking weed prior to the game isn't as, like, wild and as crazy yeah. as some may think it is it's like not like i was out there like out of my mind it was just the, the weird part about it is i probably at that point had been the most relaxed i'd ever been in a basketball game it wasn't like i was you know uh you know running around like like i was on some other drug it, it actually was mm-hmm. a point it was i mean 41 and 12 says a lot it was pretty easy and pretty relaxed and and um and uh, just, just again, being young and experimenting with something, and and at that time, to be perfectly honest with you, fellas, I was like, wow, this works, and and it was it was just a weird night, probably not one of the better things that happened in my life because it ultimately led to different stuff, and to, it ultimately led to other addictions. But that first night that I tried that, that's what happened. How much of your off-court experience do you? And and the and the pitfalls that you suffered, do you talk about with Giannis and the rest of the Bucks? So it's interesting because when I first came back, I was um, the Bucks were bringing me back. Uh, actually, Coach Kid Jason, um, my my Olympic teammate and friend, he started bringing me back, um, you know, to to speak with the guys even prior to working with the Bucks. So I would come in and. You know, I, I think like maybe two or three times um, the Bucks flew me in to speak with the guys and have conversations with them, you know, about my experiences and what I had went through off the court. Um, so when I finally, you know, got there and I, my first job was 
with Fox um, Sports. When I first got there, and I was around the team every day. I was working Fox Sports. I was doing pre- and post-game. But to be honest with you, Jay allowed me to work with the team. I was kind of like a – I was bootlegging as a coach as well. So I was really at every practice, you know, running up and down and, and doing stuff with the team. And then at night, I'd do the games. But I was really like a coach as well. So I think the, the I've shared this story with the guys. But to be honest with you, fellas, like, the guys, they, they know my testimony and they know my story. And I think, and, you know, you'd have to ask them, but I think what I get from from, from Chris and from Giannis and from Eric and, you know, Brogdon when he's there and Dante now who I'm really close with, I think what I get from the guys is that I've overcome. And, you know, to be like a story, a cautionary tale, um, about what can happen to an NBA player if he doesn't take care of his business the right way, both on and off the court. To be a cautionary tale, one, and then to overcome it, it kind of speaks volumes with the guys every time I walk in the gym and mm-hmm. I'm just on the court working with them. It's kind of, I don't want to speak for them, but I think in some ways it's inspirational to them. Um, you know, I had a, we had a, a financial, um, like a financial meeting with some of the vets last year uh, in Indiana, and I did it with one of the um, banks um, close close to our team. And I had it with Giannis and Chris and all the veteran players, and, and I told them my story about, you know, what I went through and how all the mistakes I made um, financially off the court and obviously the, the stuff that I did on the court. And when we were done with the session and walking back to the hotel, because we did it at a restaurant, we walked back, to the hotel, Giannis walked up to me and he said, Coach, out of all the financial, you know, um, sit-downs we've had and, and meetings that we've had, that was the very best one. Uh, we appreciate, and Brooke Lopez walked up and said, we appreciate you sharing, Coach, like, you know, sharing your story. And I'm totally open and honest with the guys because I got a second chance. I've, I've said this the last couple of, this has kind of come to my mind the last three weeks. So I got this second chance. It's my job, not just as a coach for them, but it's my job as a mentor and a former player to make sure that they don't have to get one. And so, you know, just just being around them and them kind of knowing what I, who I who I was as a player and what I went through, and just being there present with them is, I think, a lot says a lot. And I don't have to share it with them every day. As a matter of fact, I don't. But they kind of know um, where I'm coming from when I talk to them about basketball when I talk to him about life. So it's kind of a cool dynamic. Well, there's no question that your authenticity and honesty, I think, shines through. And you have been an inspiration to many people, not just in NBA circles, I think, Vin. And so we appreciate you opening up you. about that now. Um, I, but uh, before we get back to the, the, the on-court stuff, I did have one other question about, about off-court. Mm-hmm. In 2003, you're playing with the Celtics. And mm-hmm. as you're going through your issues with addiction, the NBA was giving you random drug tests. And you said that a couple of men hired by the league say they'd warn you about tests coming if you paid them. What can you, what, what more can you tell me about that? Yeah. Yeah, guys, I, I put that in the, in, in my book and, 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 um, you know, I don't, I, I feel awful about, what happened in my role and, and I was irresponsible and, 
with the Celtics and certainly with the, the league and the opportunities that Boston gave me um, and the league gave me. And so, yeah, I, I, mentioned, I put in my book that there was a, a situation where, you know, um, two gentlemen just talked to me about testing and, and how I could, you know, work around it, how we could get around it. So, yeah, that, that happened. I'm not proud to say that I told the story, but one of, one of the things in recovery and what, why I mentioned that story, just kind of to give some backdrop on that story, one of the reasons I, I mentioned that story uh, in my book was not to out, you know, the gentleman with the league. That, that wasn't my, mm-hmm. my point. Um, my my point in that was when you're when you're writing a book like I did God in Starbucks, you know I'd come to full to full grips and full terms with uh, what I what had happened in my life of, of of being being addicted to alcohol and then you know other drugs and pills and and things like that. So when I mentioned when I talked and mentioned those things, my MBA experiences and some of the things that happened. I really wanted to talk to the world of recovery, like the people who were really struggling. Like these are some of the things that could possibly happen, and not necessarily obviously the NBA stuff. That's that's different. But I was talking to the alcoholic, talking to the addict. Like these are things that could happen. Like there's people close to you. There's circumstances that you could get yourself into if you're not um, thinking soberly or thinking from a sober place. These are things that can happen, and so I really shared that story, not so much to out the fellas, but to <laughs> show how my life was spiraling out of control, and I had put myself in a situation uh, by becoming addicted to alcohol that everything was starting to, you know, come to the table, and even something like that where, you know, um, I was offered this deal to talk about testing. And 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 it was just different. Like um, it happened. Uh, it was unfortunate. But the, but the I think the great part about that whole situation is I had to go through what I had to go through in order to get to where I am now. Um, yep. yep. I, I don't have any like I regret some of the things that happened with the organizations that gave me opportunity. I I regret not living up to my part of it. Um, on the court, and that certainly as a as a as a person in the community, that they, especially with the Celtics, I'm from New England. You know, they mm-hmm. brought me in some ways. They, it felt like they brought me back home to get this opportunity, and I and I didn't live up to, you know, the opportunity that Danny and ownership gave me, and that was disappointing. And so, you know, in that, when I was, you know, using a, and abusing alcohol. You know, those things happen. Those things actually happen. And so when I wrote the book, I was just trying to be as open and as honest as I possibly could. And I didn't want to, like, cut the story or bend the story out. Because when you do that, you're, you're pretty much lying. And at that particular time, when I started writing God and Starbucks, I, was just, I wasn't back in the UVA. I was just pouring my heart out to the, the world of recovery mm-hmm. so that someone would read it. If they were in trouble and be like, holy cow everything happened to this dude. And, and so uh, I can achieve sobriety. If he can get through that stuff, then I can get through what I'm going through as well. So those those stories that I wrote um, in the book were accurate, and some of them were super, really unfortunate. But I, I don't blame um, the guys 
uh, I don't blame the NBA, and I certainly don't blame any organization that gave me an opportunity because I had a great opportunity just like everyone else. And But, again, I was sharing those stories to talk about what can happen when you find yourself kind of spiraling out of control in your own life. These are the things that can happen. And so I'm grateful in, in, a, in a weird kind of way, guys, not in a weird kind of way, in, 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 in a blessed way, I'm thankful that I went through everything I did uh, because now I have this tremendous opportunity to share my testimony and to mentor young men and to tell them exactly what the pitfalls are of success and, 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 and money. And so I, I, this sounds crazy, but I would not, other than hurting people, I would not change anything that's ever happened to me because I think it's it's made me the person that I am today. So, but but yeah, to your question, yeah, those things happened, and I just wanted to share them again. I was talking to the world of recovery, mm-hmm. just trying to be. When you're coming out of addiction or alcoholism, the one thing that helps you get back on the road recovery to recovery is being as honest and as open as you possibly can. And so. When I wrote God in Starbucks, I was probably three, probably four or five years into my sobriety, and so I just wanted to open up and be honest. And again, it wasn't to throw anyone in, underneath the bus. I wanted to try to walk everybody through what I had gone through in order to achieve, uh, you know, sobriety. Back up, back, back on the court, then the the last dance season, ninety seven, ninety eight. You're in you're that's the Bulls last dance, of course, and you're in Seattle and that George Carl team, sixty one and twenty one, you're the, the second seed in the West. What do you remember about the matchups, the meetings against the Bulls that year? So interestingly enough, like the at Chicago I didn't play very well. I think I it was a national nationally televised game and the one thing I remember about that game is I missed a ton of free throws. And then um, we played um, Chicago in Seattle. Now, the summertime I'd gone on this Nike tour with Scottie Pippen, Charles Barkley, Reggie Miller, Gary Payton, Jason Kidd, Sharif Abdurrahim, and I could be missing one other player, but and Reggie Miller. And we went on this, this Nike tour, and the tour was like this, this summer that I got traded. And so – um, when the Bulls came to um, Seattle to play the Sonics, uh, Scotty and I, you know, I idolized Scotty as, as well as Michael. And, of course, I had my was blessed enough to have my own signature shoe with, with Jordan. And, um, and uh, Michael thought of enough of me as a player and as a person to mm-hmm. give me my own signature shoe. And the night before we played the Bulls, um, I went to get Scotty at the uh, at the hotel, and we went to dinner and and we went to eat. And the waitress was like, or a waiter was like, so glad to have you here, um, in 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 Seattle. Then and Scotty says, I remember Scotty says, he still ain't gonna win SHIT. <laughs> he says, they're still not gonna win nothing. And so that night, when Scotty and I left dinner, we went to. Um, we went to the hotel, his hotel, where the Bulls were having, like, I guess their their every game, pregame or night before game, they were having, like, their whatever party, and there was food and, and, and beverage in there. And so, and Michael was in there, and I can remember I was just going over to say what's up to him, 
you know, because, again, I'm I'm on the brand Jordan, one of, like, six athletes at the time on the brand Jordan. So I was really going over to just say thanks and just appreciate you or just to say what's up. I didn't want to walk in the room and not say hi to Michael, man, and, and, and then, you know, he comes tomorrow um, and, and, and know that I was in the same room and didn't speak. Um, so I went over to him, I was saying what's up, and he says to me, yeah, where's that black? Where's that black MF for at? And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, you know what I'm talking about. Where's Gary? I'm like, he's he's home, Mike. Like he's he's home, man. Like like you went from zero to a hundred with this dude, like. So he's like, he starts talking crazy, and I'm like, and I felt like I had to talk crazy back. Like he put me in this space, where I'm like, bro, like what just happened? I just came over to say what's up, and I'm out of here. And he's like, um. He's like, he better be, uh, he better be in the best sleeping. You know, I'm in town. He better be in the best sleeping. And so, next thing you know, I'm like, Mike, we got people that can guard you. I don't even know what forced me to say this, but I was like, <laughs> talk back to him. And I had no intention of ever talking back to Michael Jordan under no circumstances. But he was talking so reckless that I had to say something back. And so I said to him, I'm like, Mike, we got people that can guard you. He ain't just G. So we'll see you tomorrow. And in, in, in the worst case scenario, I kept going. I don't know what possessed me. I was like, worst case scenario, I'll come over there and get some. And he says to me, right in my face, "Don't forget who's on the back of your sneaker." That's exactly what he said to me. And I was like, okay, <laughs> it's, it's time to go. <laughs> Everybody, thanks. Enjoy the next tip. Great having dinner with you. I will see you guys tomorrow. And, and that's a true story. But the, the best part of that, I always, I always watch this because it's still on. YouTube is like the one, one of the videos, one of six or seven videos on YouTube. It was I hit the jumper to win the game um, at Key Arena, like one of my top five moments um, in my career. And, and one of the reasons it made it one of the top five moments is Michael was talking so crazy, and Scotty was talking so crazy <laughs> the night before, man. But it was it was a it was a great. It was kind of my coming out party in, in Seattle when I hit that jump shot. Around the league at that time, how many – I mean, you sort of described it with Jordan that, that you weren't going to say anything to rile him up. Mm-hmm. How many guys did you find were, were actually scared to play against him or scared to talk to him or scared to, to approach him? So I didn't – you know, I played with Gary for, for years, and so Gary was like the one guy that was not. Um, but I found guys – and then I played with Ray for one year, and, and Ray wasn't necessarily intimidated by Michael. He was just young, uh, Ray Allen. But I, I didn't find, and, I, and I've heard this a little bit, I didn't find guys to be terrified of Michael because I've heard a little bit of the last games. Like, Michael had a way about him. Like, he literally, like, on the floor would, like, say nice things to people. Like, he wasn't, like, he was a killer as a player, but he had this weird way of, like, befriending people or talking to them, like, and I, the only person I ever heard him talk bad to was a great teammate of mine. He used to always talk bad to Sherman Douglas, like always talk crazy to him. But for the most part, I didn't find guys to be terrified or scared of playing against Mike. I found guys to be up for playing against him um, mm-hmm. because the thing about Michael was what's different from his game. Like if you play against Shaq or Carl Malone, you're going to physically feel it like, Michael was just graceful. He'll get 45 or 50, man, and, 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 you know, it was like a 
he never touched anyone. It was just like he played above everyone. He he got around everyone. So I didn't find guys to be totally terrified because they were probably going to get 50 dropped on them and leave, like, unscathed. Like, boy, that wasn't so bad. So so it wasn't like he was a punishing <laughs> player. He was just great. And so that's the weird part. Like, guys weren't afraid because, you know, he was giving that he was giving that 30-piece out across the league. It wasn't like if somebody gets 40, if he got 40, yeah. it was something to be embarrassed about. And so uh, – and then I played with Peyton, who was totally not afraid at all. And you guys probably know some of the stories or seen some of the stories yeah. of him against Jordan in the finals. But Gary was totally not – intimidated at all well so the jordan would give it to sherman douglas yeah i think it was a sit my my thing is i think it was like a syracuse north carolina because sherman, sherman douglas was you know he's a big time he went to a big time school yeah oh, he was a killer he was yeah I and mean, he went to a big time school you know Derek coleman cycle he was they, mm-hmm. that, that syracuse team, team was was loaded and, and sherman was big time so that was my thing. Like, it might, they were not comparable maybe in the pros, but Michael had mm-hmm. that kind of memory in mind, man. Like, if he knows Sherman Douglas was a great – that's a great college collegiate basketball name, Sherman Douglas. And so that was my idea. Is like Michael probably thinks about him at being at Syracuse. In any event, every time – it was weird because I thought it was joking at first. But every time he saw Sherman, it was like something back and forth with him and, and Sherman. So that was my thing. It was probably two big-time <laughs> co- collegiate things. Michael was the type, to me, like any he, anything motivated him, whether it was the moment, the player, the team. He he would he had that energy, like, I'm just going to go after whoever to keep it going. Like, and, and so, yeah, he would go after, he would go after Sherman Douglas, man, because I, I got into it. I got into it with Rob uh, with Ron Harper. And it was it was at Milwaukee, and Ron Harper elbowed me in the stomach super hard. I going for a rebound, just elbowed me, and I ran down and chased him down uh, on the other end. And we got we just came face to face, no blows were thrown. And Michael walks up to me behind me and just like, "Keep your head, keep your head." And this is prior to my Jordan deal, and so he had something like for me, like relax, keep your head, keep your head. But I don't know, man. So, sometimes. He he would say things on the court. Uh, I, I'll tell you a funny Jordan story. Uh, when I was playing for the Celtics, kind of dovetailing the whole Boston Celtics thing, and this is when I was obviously struggling with, 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 with my off-the-court stuff in Boston, but I still, you know, had my Jordan deal. And and Michael, um, I had these really sweet J's that, that I just got with my name and my number on them, and it was super sweet, but they were like a size too small. And... I was. We were playing. This is when Michael was with the Wizards, and so we were playing them. And I came in at halftime. I'm like, bro, I can't even move in these things. So I changed my Jordan sneakers and put on like Nike, like a white and green Nike sneaker. And we're coming. I think it was halftime, and we're coming. And in, in Boston, you like walk past the the, the visitors. And so I'm walking into our locker room, and Michael's walking. He yells loud as heck. He's like, what the bleep did you take him off for? I'm like, what? <laughs> so this dude was super – Michael is super, super competitive, but he's he's super anal and knows a lot, man. He pays attention to a lot of stuff, man. I'm like, did this dude just yell at me to take him off my J? So, good dude. 
<laughs> that's a true story, though. True story. That is wild. That's that crazy. is wild. That's crazy. Uh, uh, Vince, so we got to wrap this up. We'll just hit you on a couple quick hitters here before right. before we let you go. For for me, and I know this is probably a much longer. We could probably do a whole podcast on your experience going to to North Korea as part of the team Rodman assembled to go play over there. But what was the the single wildest part about playing basketball in North Korea? Uh, the wildest part I give you one scene was we had this whole meeting. Charles Smith, Dennis, and all the other players were there. Like there was this whole discrepancy about you know, what did we come for? Was it basketball diplomacy or was it a, a birthday gift to uh, the, the leader there? And and it was this whole argument that we had the night before. Should we do it? We were getting a lot of hassle from the states and we were just finding out that it wasn't a great idea. And so Charles and, and, and Dennis, we all agreed, like, you know, we got we to stick to our basketball diplomacy thing here and, and, and just go with it. And we cannot, under any circumstances, say that this was a birthday gift to this guy. And so everyone agreed on it. Uh, Dennis, my guy who I love, Dennis is a great guy, he's a big heart. And so, you know, Dennis was being Dennis. So we get to the court the next day, and, and you know, Dennis walks out. We all walk out and stand in front of the leader there. And, and, and Dennis gets the mic. And he sings the Marilyn Monroe version of Happy Birthday. Like, that's the first thing he did. He's like, Happy Birthday to you. I'm like, oh my gosh, this dude is crazy. happening? We're not making it out of here, man. So that was the craziest, amongst other things there, but I think that was like culminated. That was like the craziest part. Like, we just said we're not singing, saying that we came over here for a birthday. To give this guy a birthday gift, and Dennis sings the Marilyn Monroe version of Happy oh, Birthday to in front of everyone. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's one of those you, you just can't make this up. No, that that really happened. That really happened. Oh, my goodness. If, what, what was the, what was the last thing that Giannis did that you remember, whether it's in a game, in a practice, or not even on the court, that made you say, "Wow." <laughs> man uh, this, this he's he's um he's amazing like all across the board so everything that, that, that the guy does as far as basketball is concerned is pretty amazing man it's not like i catch myself like watching everything that he does like often in practice and you know from his work ethic and obviously his talent but you know we right before we ended in in our season then or was postponed uh, you know, we were just working in the gym. I think the one thing about Giannis that people don't know, and I'll kind of share that story, is that he's like the nicest human being, one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. And, and, and to have that status, to probably be at this point two-time MVP of the league, he is the nicest kid you ever want to be around. And so I was working with his brother, Denasis. Um mm-hmm. We were doing a workout, obviously, a few months ago, a month and a half ago, right before this all ended. And Giannis came over and, and, you know, he's like, Coach, I'll rebound for you as you're, you know, working with my brother, which is so awesome. Like, and, and he's demonstrating something to to Thanasis, and, he's, and and I was the defender, and he, like, runs into my shoulder. And, like, he 
going with force and kind of caught me off guard, runs into my shoulder, and he was, like, so hurt, like, Coach, are you okay? And, like, emphatically, like, <laughs> like are you okay? And that like, kind of speaks to the type of dude this dude is. Like, everything that you see with him on the court as a player, man, and, 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 and how devastating he is and how tenacious he is, the tenacity that he shows on the court, it's like he's the ni- it's on the on the on the flip side of it. He's the, the nicest kid, and and a lot like MJ, very anal and knows a lot about people, um, and 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 a lot about the people that he's around and cares about the people that he's around. But you know the stuff that you see, I see it every single day on the court when he's when he's practicing his work. That work ethic is something I've never seen in basketball, and just to combine that talent. Um, that ability with that humility is, is is amazing. And we're we're totally in Milwaukee, me, the organization, we're totally blessed to have him there. That's special. That's special. Last one, Rejecting the Screen. That's the name of the podcast. We always ask all of our guests at the end. And you can't say Jordan because we know the conversations on the back of the bus were you can't say Jordan. So game on the line, who are you giving the ball to of anybody you've ever played with, any of your teammates that you've ever played with, Game on the line, reject the screen, go ISO, get a bucket. Game on the line. Uh, can't say too. Okay. Game on the line, I'm going with Peyton. Peyton's, Peyton's going to get a bucket or a foul, man. Like, that, there's no doubt in my mind Peyton's getting a bucket or a foul. I'll go with Gary. That'll work. Vin, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, stay brother. safe. Thanks, stay healthy. Brother. Appreciate it, fellas. You too. All right. So, Vin Baker talks trash to Jordan because he felt like he just had to say something back. So then that night before playing the Bulls in that last dance season in Seattle, goes to say hi to Michael since he was wearing Jordan's also and felt obligated to say hi to Jordan, say what's up in the hotel. And Jordan goes, where's that black mf hat? Speaking of Gary Payton. And then, and then he feels the need to say, we got more than GP to guard you. Oh my God. It's a good thing. You hit that game winner. Oh yeah. That was, that was huge. I mean, it's, it, it, Vin's great because, you know, I think with, with all of the, with all the stuff that went on later in his career and, and we got into some of it, but we decided beforehand, look, we're not, we're not going to rehash a lot of what people know just to sensationalize this story, but we, but but people know some of what's happened with him. But there was so much basketball that that he was involved in at such a high level that I think that's so important. And people forget that, that about about Ben Baker, his career at Hartford, and then what he accomplished in the league, the four All Star appearances, the guys that he was on par with, the numbers he was putting up from the jump. And while people can look at it as a tragic tale, the coolest part is to hear him then say, regardless of what happened in his life. He's actually glad things turned out the way that they did, other than the fact that that some people were hurt. Like he wouldn't have changed anything. And when you hear that kind of thing, um, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool that he had such an inspirational tale that it's come full circle and and he's such a good guy. Yeah, and the Buck the Bucks are really lucky to have him, mm-hmm. as I told him, on on and off the court. I mean, Giannis to have Vin Baker to help not just skill wise, but help him off the court. And you talked about just how good he was on the court, two-time All-NBA selection. So when you look at when he was third-team All-NBA, 96-97, the guys that he was on 
third team with. So first team, let's run through it. Tim Hardaway, Grant Hill, Jordan, Carl Malone, Hakeem. Okay. Second mm. team was GP, Ewing, Pippen, Glenn Rice, Hall of Famer, Mitch Richmond. Third team, John Stockton, Shaq, Penny, Anthony Mason, and Vin Baker. And then that the following year, he was the following year he was All NBA second team. And who's on that second team? That following year, first team was <laughs> it was Duncan, Jordan, Carl Malone, Shaq, GP. Second team was Rod Strickland, David Robinson, Grant Hill, Tim Hardaway, Vin Baker. Third team was Reggie Miller, Pippen, Glenn Rice, Mitch Richmond, and Matumbo. Mm. I mean, his he was such a talented guy. And and I'll say one thing that I didn't get a chance to tell him while we were doing the interview, and that is he was really a, a precursor to a lot of what you're seeing from bigs in the NBA now. Guys that were just really skilled, could handle the ball, and not your traditional back-to-the-basket guys, but but could score in the post. But his his skill set extended outside. He could shoot threes. He could shoot from distance, as we were just talking about, hitting that game winner against the Bulls. But also just his ability to handle the ball, bring the ball up the court if necessary. All those things you didn't really see from big men during that era. And it wasn't that guys didn't have some of those skill sets, but they, they, they oftentimes weren't allowed to showcase it and didn't work on that part of their game. Vin Baker did. And so you want to talk about guys that were before the – Anthony Davis's of the world and, and some of the bigs that we're seeing now, Vin Baker was that guy. He, he sort of set the table for everybody else. Remember he was there before KG was doing it. So mm-hmm. pretty fascinating to think about. Yeah. And he came from Hartford, the only NBA player to come from the university of Hartford. All right. So thanks again to our friends at built bar, BuiltBar.com, locked on, get $10 off your first order promo code locked on $10 off your first order at BuiltBar.com. Check out your team every day. That's the Locked On Podcast Network. Chad Ford has the big board, all things draft, Hollinger and Duncan every Monday. John Hollinger, Nate Duncan, and Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd. You can find Adam on Twitter at NaysmithLives. I'm at Noah Koslov, C-O-S-L-O-V, at rejecting underscore the underscore screen on Instagram. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.